Well, I'd like to welcome you, O future teachers of mindfulness meditation. I'm Tara Brock. And I'm Jack Cornfield. Warm greetings to you. To support you in your training, we've created a special podcast series of the best wisdom teachings from previous years of our teacher training. Now we know that sometimes simply listening and not having to watch a screen is a really good way to open, receive, and learn. The wisdom you'll hear is timeless. So while you may hear references to time, you'll easily connect with the truths that are being shared. May this rich selection of some of our favorite training sessions deepen your understanding of mindfulness and compassion and bring a new dimension to your teaching. We hope you enjoy these special recordings. Many blessings. Welcome everyone to tonight's live broadcast of our Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program. My name is Steve and I'll be your host this evening. Tonight we are privileged to have Jack Cornfield joining us. Jack is broadcasting live from Fairfax, California, while I and the entire SoundTrue team are all here in our Boulder, Colorado studio. Welcome, Jack. Oh, thank you, Stephen. Very happy to be here and happy to be connected with all of you who are part of this program. And what I'd like to talk about today really has to do with the flavor and quality of the way that we're teaching, especially since the practicum year has begun. Um, and I'd like to speak about, in particular, the topic of seeing the goodness in the students and the people that we work with. Um, because one very important part of our role as teachers, as mindfulness teachers or meditation teachers, is to impart a confidence, to encourage them, to support them, and in some deep way, to empower them so that they take ownership and feel the capacity to be present um, and mindful and alive or free in their minds and hearts in, in, and as the fruit of the practice that we do together. And you could see it um, when we were together and talked about how you answer questions. Um, and when Tara and I, in some ways, modeled that over a long period of time, because one of the things that we both do is to try to find something of value in each question, to say to them, that's really an important question, or there's something really uh, of importance in it, or um, yeah, that's really great, we need to talk about that, or to find, even if it's a question that's frustrating or not difficult, to somehow reframe it, um, to listen deeply, so that we can admire or say, yes, this points us to a deeper question that we all have to look at. And that way people start to feel a kind of um, respect from you as the teacher to them as the um, participant or the student. And you'll recall again, as we taught over these past retreats, that many of the Buddhist texts begin with the phrase, oh, nobly born, Oh, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones. And what this does is that it points to <clears throat> the fundamental dignity and nobility of each person. Um, remember what Nelson Mandela said. I, I'm sure I use this 
passage before where he said, it never hurts to see the good in someone. They often act the better because of it. And so in some ways we're looking at the person or the people we're teaching, not just their personality or their body or their circumstances, but to somehow see the spirit, the Buddha nature, the true nature that's behind all that presents itself. Now, I recently finished um, a year-long teachings on Monday night at Spirit Rock on what are called the paramitas, or in the Buddhist psychology, they're called the 10 great perfections of the heart of patience and dedication and truthfulness and loving kindness and compassion and and, uh, virtue and so forth. And when they're misunderstood, people understand or think of them as um, trying to perfect ourselves. Well, in the mythology that's talked about of a hundred thousand eons of practice, I'll become more perfectly patient or more perfectly truthful or more perfectly virtuous or more perfectly loving. And we think about that model of spiritual life or inner well-being as perfecting ourselves But as you teach, it's very clear that you can let people know that there's no such thing as a perfect person, no such thing as the perfect house, the perfect car, the perfect marriage, the perfect place to work. It's not about the outer perfections, but it's rather to see with the eyes and the heart that sees the beauty and the perfection of life as it is. And this is really what liberates us. And these perfections, if you will, get fulfilled not through the development of or transformation or, you know, fulfilling, all right, now we're more and more perfect. But seeing the fundamental goodness um, that's already there in the heart, acknowledging it and allowing it to blossom forth. When Trudy and I were recently in India, we were in Dharamsala with the Dalai Lama for a series of meetings, the Mind Life meetings um, on human flourishing that brought together neuroscientists um, and contemplatives and educators. A lot of it was on education, on social and emotional learning and the ways that that's fostering well-being for children, especially around the world. And we had a chance to sit down, Trudy and I, with the Dalai Lama to talk about a few things. And he wanted to talk Dharma. He wanted to talk spiritual practice with us first. And he said, you know, he said, it's very important as you teach, or as we teach, not just to focus on the difficulties and the suffering. This is like the first noble truth of uh, the teachings, the first basic truth or even the causes, although that's important. But you must focus on cessation of suffering, on the end of conflict, difficulty, suffering. Um, You must make this visible, make this um, uh, the invitation for those who come to practice. And this is a really important reflection for you as teachers, many of you new teachers, um, to help people discover 
these truths, these basic truths in themselves. Yes, there is suffering. And yes, there are causes, reactivity and greed and hatred and ignorance individually and collectively and so forth. Um, and there is an end to the suffering. There is a way in which um, we can live in this world with a mind and heart that is filled with goodness, with care, with well-being, even though there are difficulties in life. Because <clears throat> everybody's life has them. And the people who come to practice, many of them, uh, some come because they have a spiritual vision or some idea of what might be possible for their hearts and minds to open. But many of them come with their suffering, the divorce that they're in the middle of, or a financial loss or fears, um, um, burnout at work, uh, struggle with um, colleagues or in, in, their, in their work life or business, um, difficulties in their family, immediate or extended family or with their children or parents, or the great anxiety and um, worries and concerns that have become so widespread in our divided society um, for our future, for the care for the vulnerable among us, for the fact that we're still awash in weapons um, and we want to have a peaceful humanity, but yet we're both spreading and selling weapons in our culture and everywhere. We need to utilize ourselves. Um, so this has to be acknowledged and held in deep compassion and loving awareness. And then once that's true, once their experience is acknowledged and held with compassion, tenderness, then our teaching and practice is to invite a shift of awareness, a shift of identity from the small sense of self, the body of fear, to become the witness to our humanity and to our human experience. And I remember many years ago when I was traveling as a monk with my teacher, Ajahn Cha, we'd gotten an invitation to go to a village um, <clears throat> monastery, a little forest monastery that was related for um, followers of Ajahn Cha on the Cambodian border. So we got in a pickup truck um, and we were being given a ride by this young guy who was an attendant and he was a really fast driver and the road was a one and a half lane dirt road weaving through the mountains in the southern part of, of the province where we were um, and every you know once in a while there would be a water buffalo or a buffalo cart or a big bus or a truck that would come around the curve toward us and we'd have to really scoot over to the side to not collide with them. And because it wasn't even a two lane road um, and he was going fast so you couldn't see around the curves, it was really pretty scary. And I was holding on and thinking, all right, maybe I better do my um, practices preparing for death because it felt like, <laughs> like it could happen at any moment. And then I looked over and saw that Ajahn Chah's knuckles were white too. And he was hanging on and he told the driver to slow down a few times, but he didn't. Um, and uh, finally we arrived, no 
no misfortunes, happily. And he, the driver shut off the pickup truck, and there we were sitting in the courtyard of this little forest monastery. And Ajahn Chah turned to me, and he smiled, and he said, scary ride, wasn't it? And it was beautiful. It wasn't like he was pretending that it wasn't scary or <clears throat> there wasn't fear, because your body has fear when you're in certain circumstances. But he was simply witnessing it and saying, ah, like Disneyland, that was a scary ride, wasn't it? And when we practice and teach, we invite the students to shift from being caught up in reactivity with their emotions and stories and sensations of the body to step back as the witness to their human incarnation and to say, oh, today there's the experience of praise or blame, of pleasure or pain, um, the fear or confusion or joy um, and sorrow, you know, of gain and loss. This is what makes up duality. It makes up um, physical and emotional the experience of being born in human incarnation. And when we become the witness to it, to when we witness it with loving awareness, we step out of the sense of time of trying to fix it or make it different so much. Um, we step out of self, the whole notion of self-improvement. Um, as Aldous Huxley said it, an idolatrous religion is one that substitutes time for eternity. And what we are inviting our students to do is to become larger, to become the space of awareness itself, of mindfulness and loving awareness, loving kindness. And to see this is the dance of life. And we can accept in some way heart with compassion or loving awareness, that this is how it is. Remember the phrase from Nisargadat, the non-dual guru in India with whom I studied, where he said, wisdom says, I am nothing, and love says, I am everything. And from the place of mindfulness, we can see both our interconnection of love, and we can also see the tentativeness, tentativeness of things that they arise, they appear for a certain time and they vanish <clears throat> just as your childhood or your teenage years or your first love affair or the first car you had or the first adventure you took. All of those were magical and special and they're gone. And everything is like that. It appears for a time and it disappears. And to be present as the witness, we become as loving awareness. We start to see more. The, uh, with the eyes of wisdom, the mystery of life. Uh, as Walt Whitman said, you know, a blade of grass is the journey work of stars, and the running blackberry could adorn the parlors of heaven, and a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. And everything we see, whether it's a flower, you know, or a weed, whether it's a tree or, a, you know, a stone, the fact that it exists is miraculous and no one can explain it. Not to speak of all those, I think the accurate number is zillions of stars that are as big as our sun floating out there in spiral galaxies across, galloping across, you know, 
infinite space. I mean, who made this? What is this? Who are we? And so to begin to encourage people to have the loving awareness that says, this is human incarnation with its joys and sorrows. And there's something really mysterious about it all. And our task then is to see with clarity, to see with love, and then engage or offer ourselves a mindful, loving response, offer our gifts to the world. And if we can see with mindfulness, which has in it, built into it, or loving awareness, a basic goodness, um, then all the pain and difficulty that we have, and I'm really talking about what you are communicating to the students in front of you, if you can say to them, if you can see your pain and your difficulties, which we all have as human beings, not as a failure, but as part of the pain that we all share in, just as we share in the beauty of the world, that your fears are part of the fear that's built into a body incarnation. Um, your losses are part of the losses that come with birth and death and beginning and ending and um, gain and loss and praise and blame. And somehow you invite them to witness their common humanity, their, their connection with the web of life. Um, when we see with that loving awareness, then our response can be entirely different without blame or fear or confusion and doesn't mean that fear might not be there or confusion but somehow that we're not identified with it and then we can move through the world they can be invited to move through the world in a different way and i think about seeing recently the videos of malala you know the nobel prize winning young woman from pakistan who was shot and then just recently returned and what a beautiful spirit she is able to carry and how even the incredibly grave difficulties she faced has become the source for her of some deeper and profound wisdom. And this is possible for you and possible for, you can say that to those who teach, this is possible for everyone. From the place of loving awareness, you communicate that life becomes workable and that the difficulties, Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan Lama and teacher called the manure for Bodhi, um, or Thich Nhat Hanh has this beautiful calligraphy that I've seen now on many t-shirts where he says, no mud, no lotus. That the very difficulties that are inevitable and that are not because we made life this way, but it's the way that incarnation happens, um, not because we've done something wrong that they're suffering. Suffering's part of it. So is beauty and love and, and, and majesty and mystery. They're woven together, not because we've done something wrong, but rather that these are part of our life. And then mindfulness and loving awareness, you can explain or more than explain you can be present in this way becomes a kind of a sanctuary it makes where we are 
more sacred or more holy, not in some religious, you know, formal sense, but because we see the mystery and we see the joys that are here and we see the ocean of tears, the tears of the way. <clears throat> and if you can communicate to students that they can trust mindfulness and compassion in this way, it becomes the gateway to real freedom and to understanding that who we are is not just this body or these feelings or thoughts or circumstances, that we are the spirit that was born into this life. We are the loving awareness itself. And so you communicate to them in seeing the goodness that you have the capacity to hold all of this in your awareness, in your loving awareness, that you are born with the great heart of compassion that you can awaken in yourself. And it's beautiful to say to people, remember your goodness. Let yourself grow in your trust, in your capacity to be present for all things. And remember, mindfulness and compassion can hold it all. All can be included. And that means your body with its pleasures and pains, with its sickness and its, you know, talents and health and well-being, all of it. Um, your feelings, your relationships, the society around you, your successes and the suffering. And you can be present not from a place of ego, but with a wise heart, with a stillness and a care and an attentiveness that feels both and at the same time active. And the that not only is there spaciousness, openness, but there comes a kind of tender connection. And the more connected we are, the more we care. I think of a, an acquaintance that I have, Tiffany Easthelm, who is the director of the Nonviolent Peace Force. And she's a well, 40-year-old blonde Western woman who's been working in Syria and the Burma border and the Philippines and in South Sudan in the middle of the conflict and war there for years now. Um, and she goes and she listens to both sides. And she trusts somehow that if she can listen and they can begin to find the threads of listening to one another, what are your needs, what are your fears, um, that consciousness itself and what she carries um, has the possibility of holding it all and allowing a deeper kind of reconciliation. And communicate to people that this is possible. Um, and, you know, yes, that's a very grand thing when you see um, the films that were made, beautiful ones about the nonviolent peace force, kind of remarkable to be in the middle of a war zone and walk from one side to the other and talk to people. Um, but it's not that grand usually. It also happens in the small things, in, in the gestures of how we touch those around us or how we pick up a stone in the road so that someone else doesn't um, have an accident um, because it's us, it's our family, our community. And the small things add up, they matter. You can say as you get quiet to students, you may find yourself tending in a beautiful way 
the little things of life, and they make a huge difference. If you think you're too small to be effective, you've never been in a bedroom with a mosquito. It doesn't take much to turn things around. And this is the empowerment that you want to communicate to the students you teach, whether it's in an educational setting or a meditation group you started in a business or together with them, you know, in a healthcare setting. It empowers them to tend their own body with loving awareness, to tend the world with loving awareness, and to do it not as a goal where they judge themselves. If you remember, I, I use that beautiful passage from the novelist Florida Scott Maxwell, where she says, no matter how old a mother is, she looks to her middle-aged children for signs of improvement. It's not about self-improvement, um, not a goal so much, but rather a direction. That this is the direction that we turn our hearts and we turn our minds. Um, and Dr. Martin Luther King said, um, in this direction of care for all and interaction and you know the love that he was talking about um, and justice, he said, if you can run toward it, run, if you can't run, walk, and if you can't walk, wrong, but just keep moving in the right direction. And our practice, um, is to, and our teaching, is to embody this dedication to say, yes, this is possible in your life to start exactly where you are in the very circumstances you find. Start where you are. And I think about Julia Butterfly Hill, who's a friend. Um, and when she went up in that redwood tree to try to save her from being cut down, her plan was to stay up in this little platform for a few days. She didn't realize she'd be up there for a year and a half. Um, but she started one step at a time. And you say to the students, there are good seeds in you. No matter what happens, you plant the seeds and you water the seeds. And there is a goodness that was born into you and a capacity for presence. and Sometimes you succeed for a while, and sometimes it's difficult. As you know, Michael Jordan was cut from his high school basketball team. And even Albert Einstein, when he put in his doctoral thesis and the theory of relativity to the University of Bern, um, it was originally declined as being fanciful and irrelevant. You know, so um, the feedback we get from our courage and our goodness, and the direction we're going, sometimes it's praise, and sometimes it's blame, and sometimes we're ignored. But you can communicate to people that you have the capacity to live with a free heart. You have the capacity to live in this world um, with its joys and sorrows from loving awareness, and it gives you the freedom wherever you are saying one hand on the beauty of the world, one hand on the suffering of all beings, and two feet grounded in the present moment, that when you're here, you become big enough to hold it all. <clears throat> and on my way back from being in India with uh, 
Trudy, we came back to Washington, D.C., where I gave a, a keynote address to the Networker Psychotherapy Conference of 4,000 therapists. Um, and I arrived just in time to go to the huge and very moving um, March for Our Lives. So I was out there in Pennsylvania Avenue with what seemed like three quarters of a million other people, not to speak of the marches all around the country, um, and was so touched by it. <laughs> there was uh, a civility. There was a, a strong sense of dedication. It was filled with young people, as you all know, but the police and the cops were all smiling, partly because it was very peaceful, partly because they also don't want their the country to be awash in guns. Um, and the, the power of the speakers and the care that was there um, held together with a sense of um, connectedness and common humanity was particularly beautiful. <clears throat> so Alison Luderman, who is a friend of mine and a very wonderful poet, um, wrote a poem about that day and in particular about Emma Gonzalez. And she says, I see her on TV screaming into the microphone. Her head is shaved and she is beautiful and 17 and her high school was just shot up and she had to walk by friends lying in their own blood, her teacher bleeding out. And she's my daughter, the one I never had. And she's your daughter and everyone's daughter. And she's her own woman in the fullness of her young fire, calling bullshit on politicians who take money from the gun makers. Tears rain down her face, but she doesn't stop speaking. She doesn't apologize. She keeps calling them out. All of them, all of us who didn't do enough to stop this thing. And you can see the gray faces of those who've always held power contort utterly baffled to face this new breed of young woman, not silky, not compliant, not caring if they call her a 10 or a troll. And she cries, but she doesn't stop speaking truth into the microphone, though her voice is raw and shaking and the Florida sun is molten brass. I'm 3,000 miles away thinking how Naruta said, the blood of the children ran through the streets without fuss. Only now she is, they are raising a fuss, shouting down the walls of Jericho. And it's not that we road-weary elders have been given the all-clear exactly, but our shoulders do let down a little. We breathe from a deeper place. We say to each other, well, it looks like the baton may be passing to these next runners, and they are fleet as thought fiery as stars and we take another breath and say to each other the baton has been passed and we set off then running hard behind them and i love the way she ends this poem because it's not like okay now it's your turn younger generation though that is also true but that we're supporting them and running behind them and doing all that we can as well. And so there is this dual invitation and empowerment to come and sit, to quiet the mind and the heart and become the 
loving awareness to this mysterious life with its 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And then once we've quieted and become the space of love and awareness itself, once your students find this, even for a moment, once they're encouraged to know their goodness, that you carry this in you, that this is who you are, then we can, as it says in the ancient texts, like a weaver of garlands of flowers, weave our life into a garland of goodness. There's a beautiful passage from the Tao Te Ching that I may have read to you before in the training, um, but I'd like to end with it and then we'll go on to questions. Um, and it's the kind of thing I could read over and over when I teach students and you might as well. It's, um, it's the verse number 16 in Stephen Mitchell's version of the Tao Te Ching. <clears throat> and, he, and it begins, or Lao Tzu begins, empty your mind of all thoughts, let your heart be at peace. See the turmoil of beings, but contemplate their return to stillness and serenity. Returning to the source is the Tao. If you don't realize the source, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you remember where you come from, when you realize where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king. Immersed in the wonder of the Tao, you can deal with whatever life brings you, and even when death comes, you are ready. So your teaching is really the gift of reminding, of empowering, of celebrating, of seeing the goodness in the students in front of you um, and offering a, a blessing that they might remember um, and live from this place. Happy to take questions, particularly interested in anything that's happening as you begin, you know, as you do your practicum, as, as you're teaching. Excellent. We're getting a few questions coming in. I'll invite everybody watching to type your questions below the video and hit submit and we'll, we'll answer as many of them as we can tonight. Jack, this first question came in pretty early. This participant writes, I find it's hard for me to keep my reflections of gratitude to my students fresh and unique. I always seem to be saying the same thing and it feels inauthentic to me, but nothing else is coming to me. How do you keep this type of communication fresh and real? Each time before I teach, I do it a little bit in advance and I try to make it fresh in myself. I try to feel into what does this mean to me? How has this changed my life? Um, how might it illuminate someone? And I actually take some time to reflect in that way, uh, which brings it back alive. And I, I even kind of sometimes will try to express it in my own mind in different ways. So that's one way to bring it fresh. 
Um, of course, I'm always looking for fresh new poems as the poem that I just read to you, which I got a day or two ago. Um, uh, sometimes um, it could also be fine to say, I want to express my gratitude to you or to this practice. And I want to do it in a way that feels genuine and not um, canned or not rehearsed or not inauthentic. And I'm not quite sure how to find the words, maybe just in stillness to say, you know what it means when we live with gratitude one, one another, so that you're willing to be a little bit transparent in searching for how to say it. Or you might say to the group, um, I really want to express gratitude or whatever else that's important to express that you feel you might be doing in a kind of canned way and say, and right now I'm not sure of the exact words that can do this. Does anyone have a beautiful expression of gratitude or a beautiful expression of generosity in the group that they'd like to put out for all of us? And so you expand from yourself to the collective wisdom. Um, Take your time to be quiet and listen, even in the midst of a question that's asked to you, like now, or as you prepare to respond. And sometimes just being quiet for a little bit. You can even say, I want to reflect on this for a moment and everyone gets quiet. Allows you to connect, as I hope I have, with the person answering in answering this question, um, to connect a little more deeply with myself, that authenticity, because I love your question. You want to be real and with those in front of you. Good luck. Jack, this next question relates to um, your time with the Dalai Lama and his importance of the cessation of suffering. This individual asks, what are some skillful ways or tools you could recommend we use to help our students see that there's the cessation of suffering? It's possible to get help from your students. because Yes, you can lay some basic principles um, and uh, you can even work in a class with them and say, all right, you come in and you have whatever your experience of certain difficulties right now. Maybe you're feeling down or depressed or Maybe you're anxious about something or worried or conflict and see what happens as, as we sit together, you say to them, um, and you bring loving awareness and compassion to notice this, but not be so caught in it. How does it feel when you bring compassion to this problem? And all of a sudden you can invite them to notice there already starts to feel more spaciousness or relaxation. Your breath changes. Notice what happens. And then, in the next step, you can actually ask them again and say um, that the cessation of, of suffering, the freedom that's possible, is something that we have all experienced, just as you noticed it now, bringing compassion and holding some difficulty that's in your body or mind. Um, how many of you, when you take a moment to reflect um, and... Um, let yourself remember a time when you were really caught up or lost or, or in the midst of some difficulty. And then you realize that it was possible to hold it in a different way with greater 
ease or greater forgiveness, greater mindfulness or compassion, and you felt that your inner freedom grew in that, who has that experience? What was that like? And when you ask that, very often the people who are there with you will give three or four or five different answers, depending how much time you have. Um, and everybody starts to nod, oh, yes, I know this too. Because you really want to point people back to their own capacities and their own experience. So I hope that's helpful. Jack, Trisha asks the question, uh, I find there are certain teaching contexts where it's more helpful to share implicitly rather than speak so directly to this mind of loving heart awareness. Could you share your thoughts on this? One of the most important principles as a teacher is um, skillful means. And if you're teaching meditation to um, pregnant mothers, you know, or you're teaching meditation to um, construction workers, you know, or you're teaching meditation to prisoners on death row, you're going to teach in a really different way. And part of it is to tune into the language and culture that you're entering. And when you're in that culture, to try to find a language in some places, love is not the right language. And it's a kind of confusing one. And mindfulness is the better language. Um, and so that's partly your own inner listening, respect that you can sense or know. And you can also kind of get your feedback as you try languages and things don't work well with certain people. You see their faces and they, don't, they tune out or they don't understand. Or it seems like the wrong language that you change it. Um, I remember an interesting experience some years ago um, of a famous uh, Japanese professor. He was one of their national living treasures came to give a talk on Eastern and Western psychology here in the U.S. to a group of Jungian um, therapists. There were like a thousand at this conference, um, Professor Kawai, and he got up, an older, silver-haired, very elegant gentleman, and he told a joke. And everybody laughed, and when the joke was finished, he said, let me tell you why I started this way. Because in the U.S. and in Western culture, People are so individualistic that they get separated from one another. And when I tell a joke, you all laugh and it brings us together. And then I can speak to you in a connected way. But when I'm in Japan, he said, it's quite the opposite. If I get up to speak, the first thing I do is to apologize. And that's because in Japan, we already sense ourselves as being connected and together. And my standing up takes me out of that connection. And so I say, well, I'm going to speak, but I'm really just one of us. And I know a few things that might be helpful. And I lower myself down so that we're all connected. And I thought it was kind of a brilliant moment for him to explain and describe this. Um, and it speaks to the kind of sensitivity that Tricia is asking about. Sometimes, whether it's love or these capacities that we talk about, they may need to be more implicit, and the people want the neuroscience of it or the business benefit. Um, but don't be too afraid about love also. I've also found at times in places that I wouldn't think that it would go down well, 
that there is kind of a hunger in the heart and in our culture and our time for love. Um, and so uh, trust that that has its place in everybody's life as well. Jack, a bit of a follow-up question, maybe looking for a bit more specificity. This participant shares, I'm having a difficult time sharing these teachings on basic goodness to the business-centric communities I'm teaching. How might you adjust this language, if at all, to take this idea into the business setting? I certainly wouldn't talk about Buddha nature, but even seeing the goodness seems to be too much a leap for some of these individuals. How do you change your language in this business setting? For me, in business... I talk about respect, dignity, so that when when employees and coworkers feel like they're being seen um, when they're being attended to, that's the first thing. That mindfulness actually lets you be present, so that you're not checking your you know device halfway through a conversation. But they really feel that you're seeing and listening them, listening to them. When people feel listened to, um, when they feel respected, um, they work better. And they're more productive. When you, when you treat people with dignity, the workforce and the people around you, the, it, it evokes a sense of uh, well-being and capacity that's there in all of us. And that part of our job in business um, is to evoke the best in people and the employees that we work with, that they might then offer um, the best to the work that we do or to the people that we serve. So instead of you know, Buddha nature to talk about dignity, respect, um, caring, the careful attention, um, uh, and how empowering that is, and how it actually helps the teams, the community, and all that they serve together um, to grow in a in a in a um, in a strong and and um, more uh, collaborative way. Uh, so there's some language that I might use. Got a few more questions tonight. Um, this next one's a little bit long. I'll try to get through it quickly here for you. I love the idea of making pain and fear the pain and the fear to make it not personal. But I could see times when an individual is not ready to hear that message doing, being, uh, due to being too close to the pain or fear they're experiencing. Is this an accurate read of a potential situation that we might not be able to go straight to the ultimate dimension and that instead we need to start much closer to where the individual is? Yes, always. And again, there's an intelligence in your question, as in these previous questions. This is, again, skillful means. Um, and if somebody's just had a great loss, a dear friend has died, been killed in an accident or something, you don't just say, oh, well, that's just part of the pain of life. Um, there needs to be compassion and a tenderness and time to grieve. You know, or if someone carries great trauma, you can just say, well, that's the trauma we all carry. That doesn't help them. They actually need to be respected in a, in a meaningful and loving and caring and personal way. And that's not the end of the story. That is the compassion that begins to free up their heart. Um, and as it goes long, you'll know or you'll sense when it's right. Not at that time, but days later, weeks later, later in your class that you're teaching them or with those people that you know. At some point, I think about even in the most extreme cases, uh, working with parents whose children have died 
died in a, you know, in an accident or from an overdose or all kinds of terrible things. And of course, at first, it's just almost unbearable grief um, and needs to be tended with every kind of care and respect. But at some point, whether it's being in a divorce, a terrible divorce or, or, or a, you know, a family where a child has died, it also becomes helpful to realize that you're not the only parents in the world who've lost children. And that in fact, you know, this very year, there are, you know, many, many parents across the continents who are also grieving that this is part of what happens when we have a family. Or you're not the only person in the midst of a really painful divorce that during this year, there are many across this country who are also going through the pain and loss of this separation in a marriage and a divorce. And so while our suffering is always individual and unique in some way, it also is part of our connection with all of humanity. And in the right time, that sense that you're not alone in it, but that you can breathe with and hold the suffering with all the other parents who've lost children, um, that, that that actually becomes an invitation for greater freedom. But it needs to be done a step at a time, as this questioner wisely asks. Um, and this takes a sensitive heart. This takes our loving awareness to know how to be with someone um, with that kind of care. Jack, I have one final question I want to get to tonight, um, and it's it's potentially a sensitive one. Um, this person asks, what about seeing the good in people whose, whose outward actions are truly horrible? There are individuals whose actions absolutely shock me. How do you come to terms with the challenge of seeing the good in these people? Mm-hmm. Well, it is a, it's a, a very compelling and powerful and in a certain way, a very painful question, because it means that we're paying attention to people, um, whether we're at the effect of their actions or we're seeing other vulnerable people affect their actions um, that are causing great harm and suffering. Um, and so there isn't, as, you know, there's not a pat, simple answer to this, um, but there is an answer in a certain way and that is um, that in our own work of compassion and loving kindness and loving awareness and so forth, and I think it really has to start in our own hearts. When I picture um, certain people in this world who I believe are causing a great deal of harm, I think of, for example, because it's easy and not so political to think of Bashar al-Assad, um, when the peaceful demonstrations in Syria started happening during the Arab Spring, and he turned on them with the army um, and began the civil war um, that's now been fought for these years in Syria where millions have died um, and torn apart his country. Um, he's certainly a figure that has caused enormous suffering. Um, and when I reflect on him, I bring him into my loving kindness practice, my compassion and metta. And the phrases that I use are, are, 
May you be free from hatred. May you be free from fear. May your heart be at peace. And I would wish that for anyone. I would wish that for Joseph Stalin and Edie Amen and whoever it is. Um, and maybe by putting that little bit of a wish in, two different things happen. And wish maybe is the wrong word, that sacred intention. First of all, it somehow soothes my heart not to stop caring or want to help the refugees pouring out of Syria or stand up for the uh, for justice and and the ways that people are mistreated in that or in other circumstances it doesn't stop that but it allows me to respond somehow with less uh, inner reactivity um and uh and i don't believe that pouring reactivity and anger into an already angry and painful terribly painful and angry situation is going to help and the other thing is that life is really mysterious and i don't know but maybe if there are a lot of people in the world who are sending prayers may you be free and good wishes and metta and compassion may you be free from hatred may you be free from fears and confusion um, may your heart finds peace maybe that actually will have some effect um, we are woven together in consciousness you know and i don't mean this in a glib way or okay now you think nice thoughts and it's going to change somebody else's heart but i also know as we've talked about that there I was in India or Burma or places I was practicing in Thailand, you know, with people and they or I would know about something that happened all the way back in the U.S. Oh, um, I was meditating and realized that something happened to my father and I have to, you know, telegram or call back or before it was before there was email. And yes, that very day, you know, my father had a heart attack, someone will say, and I knew it. Um, and that speaks to, we talked about this in the training, that speaks to the fact that consciousness is connected in some profound way because it's what we are and who we are. That we are consciousness itself. And when we remember this, um, then the seeds that we plant and the way that we act not only change our own lives and hearts and open us to a kind of freedom, um, but they also are planting seeds into the fabric of the universe um, in mysterious ways that we may not, science certainly doesn't understand, and even we individually may not understand, but we are connected. This is the truth. And you could call this connection love, as Nisargadot does. Um, it has an enormous power. It's the, it's the great power, really. So I hope that these words remind you as best you can of seeing the goodness, empowering, um, seeing the dignity um, in students, um, allowing yourself to recognize and help them to recognize the the. the the great heart of compassion that is in you, that is in them. Um, and I hope you're doing well in your, in your placements and that it's 
you know, it's a little bit nerve wracking in the beginning. Am I going to do this right? No, um, but maybe there isn't right. There's just, you know, if you can walk, walk, and if you can crawl, crawl, there's just going in the right direction, you know, and offering what's good that you know has changed your life and saying, this is possible for you to the others. So thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Stephen. And um, I look forward to seeing you in another uh, broadcast um, and send you many, many blessings. Excellent. Well, with that, we'll conclude tonight's broadcast of our Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Certification Program. Uh, Jack, thanks again for your participation uh, this evening. We definitely appreciated you coming on with us. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to everybody who was out there with us uh, online and in spirit, sending in your questions. We enjoyed your participation. For Sounds True, I'm Steve Lassard. Thanks again.